This is your award-winning BCFM on 93.2, 24 hours a day. And today we have a really exciting and quite unusual interview. We're going to be talking to Bronte Ansel, Director of Lawyers for Nature, which is an organisation I didn't know existed until I came across them a few weeks ago. And yeah, it's just fascinating to see how different uh, professions and everyone's different specialities can feed into trying to protect the environment. So Bronte, thank you so much for joining us. Morning. Morning. So please tell us a bit about Lawyers for Nature. What What is it? How did it get started? So about um, around about 2019, I went to a conference called uh, a wild law conference at the University of Sussex. And I, uh, in a very serendipitous moment, was texting a friend um, who was saying, oh, there's a chap in front of you called Paul Poseland, who is also kind of looking to do something different and work in a, a slightly different way. And he happened to be in the row in front of me and she was texting him at the same time. And he turned around and said, are you Bronte? Because I'm Paul. <laughs> and, and that was this most serendipitous moment that sort of changed both our lives because we then met in the break. We then decided to go to a coffee the following week. And we both just sort of sat there and looked at each other and said, we need to do something. There's no, there's no, nobody doing just nature work. And it wasn't, we, we both looked at each other and said, we don't want to be environmental lawyers. We're not trained in environmental law, but we want to be nature lawyers. We want to be wild lawyers. We want to be earth lawyers. And Paul had already been doing some tree protection work and he'd floated the name lawyers for trees. And I said, well, you know, what about the rivers and what about the animals and what about the bugs yeah. and the mushrooms? And he said, well, we could call it lawyers for nature. <laughs> so we basically that week started lawyers for nature and not only did we say we wanted to be nature lawyers, but we also said we wanted to be together practicing law differently than law firms. So we didn't start a law firm. We started what's called a CIC, which is a not-for-profit. And we would describe ourselves as a collection of lawyers, both from the barrister side and the solicitor side and the academic side, all coming together to practice law creatively and essentially as legal consultants. But we also try and behave differently to each other. So we try and have almost no hierarchy, um, which is a lot more difficult than you might imagine, actually. Yeah. Um, so we, we really try and have um, a level of mutual respect for everybody that works with us and collaboratively um, works alongside us because we don't think that we don't think that the the climate and the environment and nature will be helped by um, necessarily someone who's been in practice for 20 years versus somebody who is a law student, for example. So our belief is that everybody comes to this problem with um, creative solutions and it doesn't really matter if you if you haven't yet practiced law, for example. Um, so we really try and have this kind of level of um, mutual respect running through the organisation that isn't dependent on whether you've you know been in practice a, a very long time um but yeah it's so it's quite a it's a lovely place to work most of the time but obviously we're dealing with some really tricky issues uh, and that can bring its own difficulties with keeping keeping yourself at the coal face and keeping yourself mentally well when you're facing quite significant issues in the world yes wow that sounds so fascinating and, and different i mean 
So you do this, you all do this part time alongside your regular studies or your regular job. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much. So for the first three years since 2019, we all worked completely pro bono. Um, so we did every every matter, every bit of consultancy, every case we did pro bono, essentially. Um, and the only exceptions to that were is, is if somebody wanted to make a donation at some point, they could have done. So um, we literally were in the truest sense of the word not for profit. Um, and so we all kept second jobs on. And I kind of describe us as a bit like the women's football team, uh, the women's England football team for the last um, sort of the, the previous decade where they were kind of all working in pubs and admin jobs and having to train and and play football around that. And then finally sort of, you know, the, the, the sponsorship money and the ticket money starts rolling in. And that's kind of where we are now. So we've we've made some really good headway in, in making in, in creating some really special and interesting cases over the last year or so. Um, and matters and so on. And so we're starting now to see some funding coming in and some decent um, fees for service coming in. Um, uh, so yeah, we we essentially all still have really first jobs in all honesty, because most of us work full time in either a barrister's practice or as an academic or as a solicitor. And then we we work evenings and weekends um, there is now some paid staff which work two or three days a week, which is, is, has been a, a real game changer for us. Yeah. And so what sort of cases do you do? So it's not you're not environmental lawyers, but it's obviously cases to do with the environment, I imagine. Yeah. So our, our sort of reason for existing is to protect the natural world and all those who seek to defend it. And just to speak to the environmental lawyers point for a moment is that we all sort of thought about retraining in environmental law, but then we very quickly realised that most of environmental law is set up to allow a polluter or, you know, whoever it might be, a permission to pollute to a certain extent, for example, or a permission to cut down a certain amount of trees or a permission to dam a river in a certain way. And so we quickly realised that if you worked as environmental lawyers, really what you'd be doing is saying, well, you can do this much damage to the natural world without getting right. into any trouble. And to us, that just seemed completely nonsensical. It, it, it just didn't work for our ethos and our philosophy around nature. So we generally do quite a ragtag bunch of, of uh, matters, really, um, anything from assisting with challenging a plan, a piece of planning. So um, helping a community group understand the planning process, talking them through deadlines, helping them understand a local plan, for example, for their area and what that might mean when a specific piece of planning permission comes um, up from that local plan. Um, talking about um, protesters we do we've we've helped protesters understand their their rights against private individuals against the police so giving them some advice around you know what's lawful what kind of notice needs to be given for a protest what happens if it goes wrong what to say if you do get arrested whether that's lawfully or unlawfully arrested um, what to do afterwards if for example you felt you know, very badly treated. So giving them some advice on getting some uh, reparations back um, if they've been um, falsely imprisoned, for example. Um, 
Um, we also advise uh, quite a lot on trees. So um, one of Paul's biggest cases, just as we started out, was the Sheffield tree case. And ultimately, that 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 was a huge win for nature. There were 17,500 street trees were saved, although some were lost. Um, we did quite a lot of advice around that particular case uh, for the protesters sitting under the trees and, and how to form community groups, how to um, register as you know, a, a CIC, for example. Um, more recently, I've done some work with a large portion, about 100 hectares of Ministry of Defence land, I did some work with a community group, helping them understand what the community could do to convince the Ministry of Defence to um, not sell to a developer and and build 2,000 homes on a parcel of land and keep it as a a community green space with huge amounts of biodiversity. And then ultimately what one of our biggest cases, our biggest matters was the faith in nature intervention. So so one of our guiding philosophies is rights of nature as, as a group of lawyers. And we think that rights of nature as a concept will potentially be a, a quite a big systems change intervention for, for the planet and for nature and for governments, public bodies and even private individuals. And if I can just speak to rights of nature for a moment, what that means is that we have to stop seeing nature as an extractive resource where we don't we don't value nature intrinsically for and of itself away from what it can do for humans. So at the moment, we go into nature and we take from nature as humans and we say, you know, this, this tree provides us with fuel in terms of wood. We'll chop it down. We'll take that fuel. But we don't, we don't really trace the, the kind of rights of that tree to exist in and of itself separately to what we can use it for as humans. And what that means is that we have no aspect of our constitution which recognises that nature has intrinsic rights within us in a legal system. So, for example, trees don't have standing in court. A, a, an ancient forest that's existed for 500, 800 years, that forest doesn't have any rights to come to court, represented by a guardian, obviously. You need still need a human voice to speak to it. But that forest can't come to court and speak to the court about its right to exist, its right to maintain itself, its right to repair itself, its right to regenerate itself, and its right to have reparations when somebody damages it. Um, And when I talk about this, most people sort of look at you confusingly until you point out that within about five minutes, I can incorporate a structure which will cost me about £13 and about five minutes of my time. I can give it a name. And after that process, that structure will be called a company. And that company will have legal standing. It can employ people. It can make contracts in its own name. It can go to court and sue if, for example, its reputation is damaged. And when you sort of point that out and you say, well, we just made these things up, you know, around about 150 years ago, we just decided that this thing called a company could exist. And we we went to court and asked a judge, does it exist? And can it have its rights? And can it sue? And can it be separate to the humans that, that rely on it? And the court said, yes, of course it can. And so now we have 150 years of company law and, and corporate and commercial law, which supports that ecosystem. 
And companies can flourish in that ecosystem. They can protect themselves. They can they can repair themselves if things go wrong with their their you know their systems or their their reputation or the people that work for them. And when you think about that, that story that we've just told ourselves, you you cannot understand why we can't tell ourselves a similar story about nature and elements of nature, such as forests, rivers, mountains, ecosystems. And so we we campaign for that to happen. Essentially, we say that that's a really, really important step. It's a really important systems change process that we have to go through. And so that's kind of our one of our grounding philosophies in noise for nature and so that flowed into a call from faith in nature where they said do you think we could make nature the boss of our company and um we said oh great there's somebody just as mad as us out there um (laughs) (laughs) and we spent about nine months with them theorizing and planning and plotting and talking to lots and lots of other lawyers and academics and philosophers And we said, well, why don't we just try this thing? Why don't we just make nature a director of your company alongside other human directors? Let's make nature as a concept, a director of the company and bring it into that decision-making space and just see what happens. What what on earth could go wrong? (laughs) So, So we did that last September. And so now we've just completed a year of nature sitting on the board of Faith in Nature as a company. So this is a a fairly small company. It's a twenty million pound company. Um, it's still held in family hands. So you might say, you know, that's that's a great place to start. But you might also say, well, it's quite an easy place to start. But start we did, and and that's the exciting thing that for one year, Nature has legally sat on the board of Faith in Nature. Wow! And so, I mean, how does that influence things, or what? How does that change things from what you've seen? So. I've been fortunate enough to have been appointed as the human guardian to speak on behalf of nature for the last year, which frankly is, is an overwhelmingly, uh, (laughs) frankly, it's a, it's a, it's a very, very big position to try and fill. And I'm very, I'm still very nervous about even saying that out loud. (laughs) Um, But uh, although I speak on behalf of nature, this gives me the um, insight into how the last year has gone. And what's really interesting is when we did it last September, I thought the most powerful thing would be to have nature sitting on that board of directors and to to have nature raising its hand and saying, no, don't do this or stop or, or do this instead. And within about three to five months, I realized that, that that's actually the last part of the process. So that's the last thing that happens when you have representation in the room so what's most important about having nature's voice and having nature present as a decision maker is it's all of the conversations running up to that vote it's all of the policy making it's all of the um you know corridor chats and the coffee machine chats it's it's the the meeting before the meeting isn't it yeah and i i i think naively i never realized that actually that's where the power lies and that's where the influence lies. And I I think I probably did have some understanding of that from a human point of view, that, you know, you can really influence stuff if you can get in the room. But my entire focus as a lawyer was on getting this vote at the last, you know, getting, getting a seat on the board and getting this vote. And 
And what's been really quite lovely and quite surprising is how nature has been welcomed into those corridors of power in that company and how nature is just ever present. So, I mean, don't get me wrong, Faith in Nature is not the the perfect company. I mean, they're pretty good. They are very conscientious and they're very aware of their footprint in the world and they're very prepared to be different and change and listen, but they're absolutely not perfect. And so there is lots of conversations in corridors where we say, you really can't do this. You know, you've got nature on your board. You cannot you cannot have any elements of plastic in your supply chain, for example. Um, you know, we need to think about moving out of that. Even recycle plastic, it's still not okay. What can we use that's better? Um, we have conversations around, you know, you cannot see this company in isolation. So, so you've got to trace your entire footprint across the whole planet from literally source to sea, if you like. Um, and that's that's another good point. You know, we've started to use lots of nature-based metaphors. So thinking about roots and trunks and branches and leaves and talking about the company and those kinds of metaphors, which really helps people understand, oh, you know, we, we're here before we were here just making this shampoo for this company. But actually, we've really got to think about how we exist in the world as humans, as a company, as a product. And so it it widens the discussion massively. That's the first thing it does. It holds the company to account in a myriad of ways, which you wouldn't necessarily have foreseen when you first come into this, this kind of project. And it allows, it, it gives a permission. So it allows people across the whole company, and in fact, right into suppliers as well, it gives them permission to have different discussions. And I'm not saying that every time those discussions happen, that a different outcome occurs. But the, the healthy thing is that they are having those discussions. And ultimately, it does shift things. It does move people. It, it changes mindsets. It makes people really wake up and think, wow, we really nature is really watching over us. And nature really has a voice here. So that's quite been quite fascinating to watch. Yeah, it sounds yeah like really really different as you say. And what sort of reactions have you been getting from other lawyers? You know, you say that you all do this sort of part time in your spare time alongside doing your main jobs. What sort of reactions are you getting from other lawyers who aren't involved in Lawyers for Nature when you talk about this? Honestly, I would say almost overwhelmingly positive. So I think people look at us and and mostly understand that we're a fairly gentle, helpful bunch of people that are, although we are trying to change things radically, we are generally decent people who are trying to do good things in the world. I think occasionally um, what we see is that my co-director, Paul Poseland, is definitely the more radical arm of a more activist arm of Lawyers for Nature. Um, and I think what we see is that when he pushes up against power and when he challenges age-old aspects of the legal system, he definitely, definitely gets pushback. And so and most of that is very, very respectful pushback and decent debate. And, well, you know, I think you're wrong because of these reasons. But I think occasionally he does get the odd spiteful aspect coming back at him. And I fortuitously have never, ever seen that in my work. So I I do tend to um, 
very be very careful uh, which aspects of the press I, I caught. Um, but, you know, he's done things like gone on Nigel Farage and said, you know, nature should have rights. And whilst we think that shouldn't be a controversial statement, of course, there are aspects of of the world who think that that's just insane and, and will push back against that. Um, we've also, we've signed the Lawyers Are Responsible Declaration as well. We both signed that and, and other people in Lawyers for Nature signed that. And I felt very strongly that I wanted to sign that and I wanted to show solidarity as an academic and as a, a practitioner. And lawyers are responsible, say that no lawyers should be facilitating fossil fuel projects. So no lawyers should be facilitating brand new fossil fuel projects because ultimately those projects need lawyers. They need lawyers to do the contract work, to do the, the negotiating work. And if lawyers step back from that and said, in all good conscience, we cannot act where you are financing, where you are negotiating for brand new fossil fuel projects, then you know, very quickly those things would come to a halt. And, and we saw that to some extent with slavery. We saw that lawyers in the, in the period of slavery stepped back and said, we don't want any part of these contracts anymore. We don't want to finance the boats. We don't want to finance the, the contracts for, for selling human beings to other human beings. Uh, and that was one tiny step in the process of ending all of that. But lawyers still had a, had a part to play there and they said no more. And so we think that we're of an age now where, where we have to say that and we have to say enough now, let's find another way of doing things. And, and we have to start this big, big, very difficult transition period. And so I think we, when we talk about things like that, we definitely see pushback. But, you know, the reality is you are pushing up against significant power. And that's never, ever going to be easy. It's never going to be comfortable. And of course, if it was easy and comfortable, everybody would be doing it. So, you know, th these things are are very, very difficult and they're difficult conversations to have. But generally speaking, I would say that our profession is extremely respectful and welcome debate, actually. And of course, we, we give give back as, as good as we can get when we're, when we're debating these things. Of course. And just when you were talking there about rights of nature, it just made me think about the Sycamore Gap tree. And um, I mm. imagine that's a prime example, although I know that people have you know, I think a couple of people have been arrested and it is being pursued. But I imagine that's a prime example of the stronger the protections that um, trees and that um, pieces of nature can have, then the, yeah, the, the, the better protected they will be legally. Absolutely. I think um, it sounds awful to say this, but I almost think the Sycamore Gap tree that was felled was a was actually a moment in time where I think we may look back on it and think, wow, that was the moment at which the whole nation sat up and said, hang on a minute, how has that tree been cut down? And I think as sad as it is to lose that really iconic tree, I wonder whether that moment might be used for the good and it might be something that we say that tree was sacrificed for the greater good in that people suddenly started to say well could we not give trees greater protection and I think the the reality is that trees even iconic trees even really historic trees you know very very old ancient trees 
there's actually very little protection there. So the system we have is, is primarily a system of private property with exclusionary rights. So if I go tomorrow and I buy an ancient forest for £100,000 with you know, 10 or 15 or even 100 beautiful trees in it, the reality is I can put a wall around that forest. I will own that forest at land registry. I'm the legal freehold owner of that forest. And there's almost nothing anybody can do to stop me cutting every single one of those trees down. I, you know, I, I talk in the most basic terms here. Of course, there may be things that, that might influence the, the ability to cut those trees down. If it was a conservation area, um, if there were tree preservation orders on that on that forest, it might make it more difficult. But ultimately, if I was really determined to, I could cut those trees down. And the punishments that I may face, not even definitely face, the punishments that I may face are fairly lenient. I mean, it's highly unlikely that that I would go to prison. And I think if we just go back to the Sycamore Gap tree for a moment, it's possible that one of the people that have been arrested may go to prison. But if it's their first offence, if they're a minor, which there's some indication that there's a minor that's been arrested, it's much more likely that they'll just receive a fine for breaching a, a tree preservation order, right? So, and the tree is still gone. The tree has no reparation. It has no standing to challenge its its right to life. Um, so it's a really difficult issue. And I think if trees were treated like companies, for example, where there's significant protection for companies, there's significant avenues for litigation for companies where they can protect themselves. And even, you know, people can go to prison when they, they damage companies, for example, um, I think if there was a similar level of protection for nature, for trees, for rivers, I really think it might be much more of a deterrent. And as I say, coming back to the rights of nature, really the only way to get that level of protection that companies have is to change our systems to show that, that and to, to give nature rights, essentially. Wow. Yeah, I know that's, um, that's quite thought provoking. I didn't, yeah, I sort of didn't realise it was that bad. Um, so, yes, I think we are running out of time, but to briefly summarise, so if people want to get in touch with you to get a, get advice, you know, it sounds like you don't sort of represent people as such on a case-by-case basis, but you give a lot of legal advice. If people want to get in touch with you or or get involved, volunteer or donate, how, how would they do that? Yeah, that would be great. So we do take some cases. I mean, we are a very, very tiny, tiny collective of lawyers who are ultimately extremely stretched. Um, But we try to help wherever we can if we have capacity. Um, Generally speaking, if it's a small community group, we often do that work for free. Um, We ask, you know, if you ever do have some money, then you donate to us. Um, So we do take some some cases on. We generally are doing a bit more policy work now. So we're working more with governments and with um, councils and things like that. However, there's there's sort of a couple of things to get involved. So if you are a lawyer for nature, then you're very welcome to join us and the doors are open and you're you're very welcome to come and work with us. Um, highly unlikely we'll be able to pay you, <laughs> just to state that straight up. <laughs> just to be um, clear, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just, just, to, just to set the tone straight away. Um, but we would love you to join us and volunteer for us, uh, especially if you've got any kind of legal knowledge that is, is that fits in with some of the things I've talked about. 
And you absolutely don't have to be an environmental lawyer to be a lawyer for nature. And then I think if people feel passionate enough about the work we do, it would be absolutely lovely for them to send some donations our way. Um, we, we are entirely reliant at the moment on funding from philanthropic sources and donations. Um, so we, we, we really do need some donations. And you can obviously do that just by going to our website. And I think we're pretty rubbish at, at directing people to donate us buttons because we don't really... We don't, we're not really good at that sort of things, but I'm sure there's, there's some sort of donate to us button or just send us an email. <laughs> just get in touch being like, please take my money. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, that, that sounds great. So thank you so much. Is there any final words you'd like to leave with our listeners? Any final thoughts? Yeah. So just to leave you with the idea really that um, whatever profession you're in, whether you're, you're a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer or um a, uh, a bus driver I think there's there's always something you can do for nature and nothing is too small you anything you can do even just getting out into nature and and walking in it can ultimately make your life better and possibly might open a door for you to in some way protecting nature in the future and I just would say that community is really really powerful in the face of um the systems that we're living in right now so i would just urge you to find community however that might be and to support community whether that's a small community group or whether it's joining a protest or whether it's just sitting and knitting around a tree that that is at risk of being um felled with a bunch of other people to protect that tree um, when you find community and you start to make connections, it can really make your your life better and it can make everyone else's life better. So, yeah, I think nature is asking us to find community and to support community. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for coming on and remind people of the website if they want to find out more or get in touch with you. Sure, it's uh, www.lawyersfornature.com lawyersfornature.com nice and simple well thanks so much for coming on and for all the work you're doing around this and yeah uh, best of luck and keep keep up the good fight thank you so much thanks for having me this is the podcast version of one love one planet the award-winning environmental radio show broadcast every tuesday at 11 a.m on bcfm radio available on 93.2 fm on digital radio and on the bcfm website the show was produced and presented by Shona Jemfrey. You can find us on Twitter at Shona Jemfrey and at BCFM Radio.